Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. It's been several weeks since Hurricane Michael tore through Florida's panhandle, and still, the images are hard to forget. Hey, right now, I'm on the east side also of Panama City Beach. This is a Texaco gas station that is about to come down. Very big-time wind. Wind's gusting over 130 miles an hour. Our vehicle is bouncing up and down. We've got a bit of a shelter upstream, too. We are not. Oh, there's another piece of debris. Sheet metal flying through the air all over the place out here. Before Michael, Hurricane Florence took dozens of lives and destroyed homes, roads, and power lines in several states, including North Carolina. Some of those evacuees are coming back home only to find parts of their community are still devastated. Later in the show, we'll talk about the cleanup efforts there. But first, we want to go to Puerto Rico. Last year, Hurricane Maria killed nearly 3,000 people and devastated the island. It was very awful, and... You know, going through the things that I go through every single day on a daily basis, a catastrophe like that was very difficult. That's Valerie Rodriguez. She lives in Bayamon, the island's second biggest city. Even before the storm hit, life was already a struggle for her young family. (laughs) (laughs) Valerie's son, Stefan, is 18 months old. He has a lot of health problems. He can't roll over or swallow soft foods. He will never walk. Or talk, and he's on seven medications. He hates this one because it's an actual pill that I have to mash. Like he leaves it in his mouth and he doesn't swallow it, and he thinks that I do not notice that. It takes Valerie about two hours to give Stefan his medicine and feed him, a routine she goes through each morning and then again at night. And I have to strain everything so that there are no lumps and he doesn't choke. Stefan needs care pretty much around the clock. It's because he was infected with the Zika virus when he was in his mom's womb. Zika was big news a couple years back. And for those of you who don't remember, the virus is spread by mosquitoes and through sex. Zika hit Puerto Rico hard and also found its way to some parts of the mainland U.S. Stefan has microcephaly, the worst-case scenario for babies with Zika. It stops the brain from growing. And when you look at Stefan, you can see that while his chubby cheeks look a lot like a baby's should, his skull is smaller than it should be. Even before Hurricane Maria, Zika had faded from the headlines. But it was still a problem in Puerto Rico. According to the government, more than 1,500 pregnant women caught the virus in 2017, just before the storm. But then something strange happened. Since the storm, the government has reported zero new cases. Zero. And Puerto Rico declared the crisis was over. How could a hurricane make the Zika virus disappear? That's what reporter Beth Murphy wanted to find out. She's with the Ground Truth Project based at WGBH in Boston. Beth started following the Zika crisis when it started two years ago. And after Hurricane Maria, she began investigating what happened to all the Zika cases. Here's Beth. If you're covering the Zika crisis in Puerto Rico, one of the first people you have to meet is Dr. Carmen Zaria. She asks me to call her Carmen. I first interviewed her back in 2016, when the Zika epidemic was exploding. She's an OBGYN at University Hospital in the capital of San Juan. 
Buttoned up in her white lab coat, Carmen is all business, except for her bright pink lipstick. How many women who have been diagnosed with Zika are you caring for right now? Last week, I saw two groups of women with Zika. I saw 32 patients, and I said, okay, listen to me. You have Zika infection. You are pregnant. This virus can live in the placenta. We don't know what the impact on your baby is before the baby is born and afterwards. She wants me to meet some of her patients and takes me down the hall to a support group she set up for them. Nine women are here, taking turns getting ultrasounds and looking nervous as they come back from behind the pink curtain to sit in a circle. One of the rules here is that whatever we say here stays here. Like in Las Vegas, whatever happens in Las Vegas stays here. So That's when I see the real Carmen, the Carmen who lights up when she's helping other women. I never had a sister, and I think I went into OBGYN looking for my sisters, and every patient is my sister. Zika wasn't Carmen's first experience dealing with a deadly virus that can be passed on from moms to their babies. She was also there for the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 80s. I lived the same experiences of pushing for testing and pushing for screening in pregnancy because I believe that's important. I'm, I'm doing the same exact thing for Zika. Test. Test again. Then test again. That became Carmen's mantra. Test pregnant women early and often. She believes women deserve options. My responsibility as a provider is to have the conversation. You know, you can continue or interrupt your pregnancy. It is your choice. You don't need a diagnosis to have that decision because abortion is legal. But I don't want you to come um, six months from now and tell me that you never had an option because nobody told you about it. Most people who get Zika don't have any symptoms. So the only way to know which babies are exposed is to test. It's a double, actually triple job. I'm also concerned about public health. So is public health, individual health, future of the country in terms of the infants? During our first meeting, Carmen talked a lot about how bad the economy was and how many doctors were leaving the island to practice on the mainland. Still, Puerto Rico was ahead of many places when it came to tracking Zika. All pregnant women were tested. And for babies who were born with the virus, the government set up a system to track them for three years. And all this was free. By 2017, Puerto Rico was tracking 4,000 babies with Zika. Then, in September, came Hurricane Maria. Sustained winds 165, and now the National Hurricane Center does believe... A major storm with a direct hit on the populated eastern part of Puerto Rico. The governor issuing dire warnings, saying this is going to be a catastrophic storm. I tried reaching Carmen on the phone when the storm hit. It took me two weeks. She told me it was like the island had been hit by a nuclear bomb, and she was exhausted from working around the clock. Now we're in a much worse situation. Only 6% of people have power. Right now, 16 days after the hurricane, we're, we're in a survival mode. Even though her hospital was barely functioning, it was one of the few open. And Carmen was delivering more babies than ever, 30% more than usual. The healthcare system collapsed as well as the power system, as the communication system. And we're only dealing with emergencies. So anything that's routine, like all the babies born from women infected with Zika, all these babies that need evaluations, that stopped. And it will not be until maybe weeks from now that these services will surely start uh, renewing and, and being implemented. Weeks. That's how long Carmen thought it would take for the island to recover enough to start thinking about Zika again. After that first call, I checked in with Carmen at least once a month. And on each call, she told me the same thing. There was no word from the government about restarting Zika testing for pregnant women. So in the spring of 2018, six months after the hurricane, I went back to Puerto Rico to find out what was going on. There was no Zika testing ever done 
since September 2017, since the hurricane. So we have no way of knowing if we are still having transmission or not. Doctors could still draw blood to test it for Zika, but there wasn't much point to it. That's because they were being told the government health lab that performs the test was closed for business. Not only that, this is when officials announced that the Zika crisis was over, that there were no new cases of Zika on the island. It was like Zika had been swept away by the hurricane. The website of the health department, which, by the way, is no longer there. I checked yesterday the health department website to see whether they had any Zika statistics. Nothing. They have nothing there now. It's only the old reports. Carmen couldn't believe it. The government was saying there were no new cases of Zika after the hurricane. But 1,500 pregnant women had been diagnosed earlier that same year. Doctors she works with couldn't believe it either. Dr. Cynthia Garcia-Cole is a clinical psychologist who spent 17 years teaching child development at Brown University. I mean, if you don't test for Zika, how are you going to know how many people are being, you know, infected? Before the storm, Cynthia spent a year traveling to government health centers around the island, gathering data on Zika babies after they were born, the ones the government is following for three years. Do you feel like there have been attempts to silence you? Oh, boy, this is a good one. Uh this point, the program that I was part of monitoring the development of children born to Zika-exposed pregnancies within the Department of Health, we have been stopped. Cynthia tells me the government fired her and took all of the data she'd collected. She says they didn't give her a reason for letting her go. And the health department wouldn't tell us either. After Cynthia stopped working for the government, she teamed up with Dr. Carmen Zaria, and they're monitoring children on their own. Cynthia's focusing on babies who were exposed to Zika, but born looking completely normal. Babies like Kimberly. Right, so what we're doing here is the Bailey scales of infant development. Kimberly is seven months old, and because today is actually her seven-month birthday, her grandmother dolled her up in a fancy dress and a headband with one giant bow that seems to say, I don't have hair, but I am a girl. Cynthia looks like a kid herself, exaggerating her expressions and practically climbing onto the table. It looks like she and Kimberly are playing, but everything Kimberly does, how she reaches for the rattle, how she holds it, the way she tries to squirm off the table, it's all a test trying to answer one question. Is she able to do what's expected of a seven-month-old? For the most part, yes, but... But I noticed that, you know, there's a little fragility here in terms of self-regulation, is what I just noticed so far. As you've been monitoring um, Mm -hmm. babies exposed to Zika, what have you been noticing when you were doing it? Yeah, there's a very wide range Some kids are doing really well, and some kids are very compromised. I'm noticing a lot of small motor delays, moving your hands, delay sitting, delay walking. These kinds of exams are crucial, because if a doctor notices that a baby's motor skills aren't developing the way they should, they can start therapies to help the baby. Studies like this also help researchers understand how Zika works, Yes, it can cause massive problems like microcephaly, but it can also cause more subtle neurological issues, trouble swallowing, walking, seeing. Remember that there hasn't been that many studies on these kids. And the samples right now of things that I've seen published are 30 kids, you know, 40 kids, 10, and we have 200. We have over 200. So that's why we think this data is really important to publish. But it's not clear if this study will ever see the light of day. The health department needs to authorize publication, and so far, it's refused to do so. I told them the last meeting that we had, I said, I can't believe you're being completely unethical. So who were you talking to when you said... The officials from the Department of Health that were in charge of the Zika monitoring system. Now, I've never seen politics getting involved on on research the way that this 
looks like. I've wanted to understand the politics behind Zika ever since I started following it two years ago. And I did everything I could think of to talk to someone from the health department. At first, I called. When that didn't work, I showed up at their offices again and again. I mean, the problem is, I mean, I've been to this office many times now in person and also called. You will have to set a date. Finally, I tracked down the assistant secretary of health, Dr. Concepcion Quinones Longo. We meet in the hallway of a convention center where she's speaking at a press conference about a new lunch program. And just like the doctor said, she's quick to give me the government's official line on Zika, that the crisis is over. So far, we are not detecting new cases uh, of Zika. And our state epidemiologist doesn't expect to have cases right now. I asked her why the health department had stopped testing pregnant women for Zika. This is what every doctor I spoke to told me. She says that's not true, that the health department is performing the tests and has been since just a few weeks after the hurricane. After Maria, we tried to make sure uh, samples collected all over the island were brought to our central laboratory in the Department of Health San Juan, Puerto Rico. And these uh, samples were sent uh, to the CDC laboratories in the States because our laboratory in Puerto Rico was damaged. I checked with the CDC, and they told me that never happened. The health department never sent Zika samples to Atlanta for analysis. But Dr. Canonis is adamant that the testing is back on. We are not testing the population in general, only pregnant females. I just want to follow up on a couple things. Um, first, the, the testing of pregnant women. The OBGYNs that I was talking with, they didn't seem to think they had a clear mandate from the health department to be testing or that there was a way to get those test results back. The mandate exists. She blames the doctors for dropping the ball. They're private physicians in private offices, and we don't have uh, that close contact with them to make sure they do the testing they should. Dr. Canonas also tells me that women can ask to be tested. But I find out later that that testing is no longer free. Women now have to pay $100. And the other thing is, last year the government said the crisis was over. So why would a woman even ask for the test? Then I ask her something else. When will all that data on developmental delays in Zika babies be released? Well, I think uh, there will be some information released. This is the kind of answer I get from Dr. Canonas on almost everything we talk about. She's hard to pin down. And by the end of the conversation, she tells me that she needs to get permission from her boss, the health secretary, before she can share any more details. It's not that I can talk to anybody openly without being authorized, because we want to have uh, the correct message. After we part ways, I'm left standing in that convention center hallway. And what starts to become clear to me is that the health department doesn't want to talk about Zika, with me or even their own top Zika doctors. Several docs told me they stopped hearing from the health department altogether. In that silence, doctors like Carmen Zaria and Cynthia Garcia started wondering, why? Why was it so important for the government to make Zika go away? Cynthia says they think it comes down to money. There is no question, you know, that the Zika epidemic, the notion of having a Zika epidemic here, affected all of us in terms of tourism. Tourism. It's the lifeblood of the island. I reach out to the Puerto Rico Tourism Association and talk to the organization's president and CEO, Clarissa Jimenez, about how much Zika affected the island. It was a huge impact. Clarissa remembers when the CDC first issued warnings about Zika in Puerto Rico in 2016. The numbers they were given were really, really high and scary. And we had lots of cancellations. You know, there was uh, the perception that you would step 
here and you would get the virus. I mean, because that was what was portrayed, you know, those huge percentages of the population getting the virus. Tourists stayed away and the island lost $100 million. And that, she says, shouldn't have happened. Uh, let me see how can I say this. Um, <laughs> the reality is that a lot of hype was created. After Hurricane Maria, the government wanted to build back the tourism economy as quickly as possible. And doctors I talked with believe that meant getting rid of Zika. Dr. Carmen Zaria knows that Zika is still a threat. So she's found a way to restart testing of pregnant women for Zika. And I feel this is so important to be able to identify because most of the patients who have Zika do not have any symptoms. And if they are pregnant and they have Zika, they might be at risk for birth defects. Carmen did an end run around Puerto Rico's health department. She teamed up with the CDC to provide free Zika testing for pregnant women. It's the only program like it on the island. So, Melissa, we're starting the Zika testing today, and you're pregnant. On the first day back in the spring, eight women had their blood drawn, including Melissa. It's always been a concern because I've seen people sick with Zika, and it's been... Did you know when the hurricane started that you were pregnant? No. I found out, like, a week later. I was struggling with the, why now? But... Don't call this baby Maria. No, Do not call this baby boy. Maria. <laughs> that, that, I think that name will be eliminated from the birth registries in a while here. <laughs> the new testing continued through the summer, and it's still going today. Doctors say the first results are in, and even though it's a small sample, they're alarming. 9% of women are testing positive. That's almost what the rate was at the height of the epidemic. I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher. I'm not running for any political position. Therefore, I can actually honestly say what the evidence tells me to say. And the evidence is telling Carmen Zika is a very real danger today for pregnant women and babies. In Puerto Rico, around 26,000 women will give birth this year. So far, fewer than 300 have been tested for Zika. I've been an obstetrician for more than 36 years. I've been blessed of being present for the birth of so many babies. And I can tell you that the first thing a woman asks, how's my baby? I think it's, uh, it's ethical in the sense that we need to do it. We need to do the right thing. that story was from Beth Murphy at the Ground Truth Project. She's the director of films there and also has a short film coming out about this story. We checked with the CDC about Zika in Puerto Rico. One of their epidemiologists told us that the risk of getting Zika now is less than during the outbreak a couple years ago. But the virus will always be there. People need to protect themselves from mosquitoes and sexual transmission to avoid getting infected. In a moment, we head back to the mainland, Houston, Texas, where a year after Hurricane Harvey, people who are using a government program to pay for housing are getting the door shut in their faces. You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, 
and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Much like Hurricane Maria and Puerto Rico, Houston has also faded from the headlines. In August of last year, Hurricane Harvey inundated the city, damaging 800,000 homes in Houston and leaving thousands without a place to live. More than half of those homes were rental units, many for Houston's poorest residents. And even before the storm, the city was dealing with an affordable housing crunch. Now officials say it's gotten even worse. Nina Satija and Edgar Walters, reporters with our partners at the Texas Tribune, have been covering the aftermath of Harvey, and they recently spent time with a woman who's found herself at the center of that housing crisis, working with some of Houston's most vulnerable residents. Here's Nina. For months after the hurricane, I'd been seeing this one name on real estate listings for low-income apartments, Pamela Banks. So in April, I went to see her in this sprawling suburban office complex, about a half hour north of downtown Houston. Pam's office has a sign above it that says, Banks and Banks Financial Services. There's also a sign that says, El Olam Word of Deliverance. She's a pastor and a real estate agent. When I walk inside, Pam's taking a phone call from a client. Good morning, this is Pam. May I help you? Her desk is covered in paper and folders and post-it notes. Walk-in clients are constantly coming in and out. And as soon as she gets off the phone, it just rings again. Sorry. Good morning, this is Pam. May I help you? As the client talks on the phone, Pam scribbles on a yellow legal pad. Okay, when can you uh, come in to do an application? What time do you leave the office? 9 p.m. You're here until 9 p.m.? I haven't been on since Harvey. These people are displaced. And, some, you know, because it, they're not talking about it in the news anymore, that a meeting ain't still going on. Pam's been hearing from a lot of flood victims. And besides wanting a place that won't flood again, pretty much everyone who calls or drops in has one request. You know, I'm trying to be in a better area for myself, or for my kids or something like that. I, wanna... I have a, a 15-year-old son. And I... Just somewhere in a good neighborhood. Like, you know, a nice area with a good school district. One of those clients is a woman named Denise Taylor. She's from Chicago. And she reached out to Pam online just a couple months before the hurricane, when she was thinking about leaving. Denise did not feel safe in her old neighborhood. And she wanted her daughter, Christina, to go to a better school, to meet kids from all kinds of backgrounds. On the west side of Chicago, it's just African-Americans and Hispanics. That's it. And I used to try to explain, that is not normal. That's just not normal. But where can I take her to really see it? Like most of Pam's clients, Denise had something that's supposed to help her get what she's looking for. It's called a housing choice voucher, also known as a Section 8 voucher, a government benefit that helps low-income people pay rent. About 20,000 families in the Houston area use these vouchers. The program was designed to be this ticket to a better neighborhood, maybe a better life. It's federal money, so you can use the voucher anywhere in the country. On the last day of July in 2017, Denise and Christina got into their Ford Focus hatchback and drove from Chicago to Houston. They hardly knew anyone there, except Pam. So I said, well, when you come down, you can stay with me while you try to find something. How many roads are going to do that? I ain't know her from nobody. She could have been a killer. But again, you know what I'm saying? I let her move in my house. I said, anything I got here you can have. It's clothes, man. You want some clothes? Go get the clothes. She left me a key. My first day out, she was gone. I woke up. And I was like, she just left us here. And it was a key that said home. It didn't take long for Denise to find a job at a pharmaceutical plant, packing and shipping. But just a few weeks after she moved in with Pam, Harvey hit. And Denise's housing search suddenly got way tougher. Harvey damaged more than 40% of Houston's houses and apartment buildings. There was a lot more competition for what was left. And the vouchers expire in as little as two months if you don't find a place in time. So she hit the phones. My name is Denise, and I was calling in reference to your apartments you have for rent. Denise's voucher would let her rent a two-bedroom apartment costing up to $1,400 a month, with the government paying maybe half of that. She found plenty of apartments within that price range in neighborhoods she liked. And my next question is, do you guys take the housing choice voucher? 
So you do or you don't at all. Okay. That's okay. Thank you. Denise made dozens of calls like this. Everyone said no. A month after Harvey hit, then two months, Denise was still staying with Pam. And apartment managers were still telling her no. In some parts of the U.S., it's illegal to reject a renter just because they have a voucher. It's considered discrimination. That's not true in Texas, though, which I'll explain more later. It's, it's degrading, and if you're not morally, if you're not built up morally, it can really put you in a, you know, a depressed kind of state. Like, mm-hmm. am I, you know, it'll make you put yourself in a category that you're not in. One out of every four families in Houston that receives a voucher never gets to use it. That's according to the Houston Housing Authority. Denise was worried she'd have to give hers back. Why don't you take Section 8? What's wrong with Section 8? Denise thinks this isn't about her voucher. She thinks it's because she's Black, like most voucher holders. We ran the numbers and found that almost 90% of families in the Houston area with vouchers are African American. Most of them live in areas with the city's highest poverty rates. The way Denise sees it, she's deliberately being steered toward the poorest and most racially segregated neighborhoods. Local housing officials recognize that this is a problem and that Houston is actually one of the most segregated cities in the country. A few years ago, the Houston Housing Authority tried to take a small step to address the issue. It didn't go well. (laughs) Officials had this idea to build a mixed-income apartment building in a wealthier part of town called the Galleria. It's known for this giant glitzy mall with an ice skating rink. Some of the units in the building would have to accept vouchers, giving poorer families access to better schools. But hundreds of angry Houstonians revolted. And I'm here to oppose this project, as you can tell. Back in 2016, they showed up in force to a public meeting at the neighborhood elementary school. It was standing room only, lasted for hours. Almost all the people in the crowd were white. They complained that the building was too expensive, would overcrowd schools, lower property values. If I hand you a group of 40 grapes, and I tell you that two of them are poison, how many of those grapes are going to eat? So affordable housing, great. It's wonderful to have compassion, but I think if we look around our country, much of the compassion has led to problems for the people that we thought we were being compassionate for. And boy, I mean, all this money... People sent written comments, too. One person complained about what they called pollution of upscale neighborhoods with the poor. Only a few people spoke up in favor of the proposal, including a woman named Chriselle Pillay. Much of the opposition seems to really be rooted in the fear of a changing neighborhood. Chriselle's Black, and she works for a housing advocacy group. She told the audience, the people who want to live here are your janitors, your baristas, your waitstaff. So these people are good enough to sustain your current quality of life, but they're not good enough to live in your zip code. When this whole debate was going on, Pamela Banks was watching it unfold and thinking about her clients. These apartments could have helped them. If they could move to that neighborhood with a voucher, they could get a leg up. But the project was killed not long after that public hearing. I called Pam recently and played her some of the tape. The part where the guy talks about compassion for people who need affordable housing, but also about poison grapes. Pam told me it made her think about how, after the hurricane, people set up animal shelters on that side of town. You can have compassion for a dog that's in in the Galleria. Hmm. You can have shelters out there. You see what I'm saying? But, But we can't be out there. So you value a dog more than you do us. And what you're really saying, in a sense, is you really don't want us in your neighborhood. There's a reason Pam is saying we and us here. For her, it's personal. In her late 20s, after she and her husband separated, Pam landed in Houston as a single mom. She applied for a Section 8 voucher and waited for seven years to get one. When she finally got her voucher back in 1997, Pam spent months searching for a place that would take it. One day she came across this listing, a brick house with a fireplace in the suburbs, in an area known for better schools. So she drove out there to meet the landlord. It was raining. I got out there, and there was a a young African-American lady that was in a BMW. She got out. 
and went to walk toward the house. Pam knew her odds had just gone down and was tempted to turn back. But she decided to wait for the woman with the fancy car to leave. She went to the door and introduced herself to the landlord. I said, I'm Pam. I said, and I have housing. And I know you may or may not know about housing, and you have a stereotype image, but take this home and pray about it. And then let me know if you want to work with me. The guy said, okay, you can rent this house. And five years after Pam and the kids moved in, she bought her own house. This is why Pam does this work today and why she's trying so hard for Denise. In Cook County, Illinois, where Denise is from, rejecting someone just because they have a Section 8 voucher is considered discrimination, and it's illegal. It's also illegal in a handful of states, including Massachusetts, Oregon, and New Jersey. A few years ago, Austin, Texas, passed an ordinance like this. But a few months later, the state legislature overturned it, and lawmakers went even further. They banned any other city in Texas from doing the same thing. Basically, Texas landlords are allowed to discriminate against people with Section 8 vouchers. And they can't be punished for it. Texas was one of the first states in the country to pass a law like this in 2015. Indiana did, too, the same year. Denise didn't know about the law when she moved here. Does your daughter, does she understand that some people don't take vouchers and some people do take vouchers? Does she get that? Well, she she gets that to a certain extent. But I don't want her to understand the... Uh, the discriminational part of it. I don't want her to feel stereotyped because of a voucher. Denise was really hoping to use her voucher in one of two suburban zip codes, both majority white, very low poverty, better schools. But out of the 17,000 families that get vouchers from the Houston Housing Authority, we found that only 36 were living in those zip codes. So what's going on here? Why are so many landlords unwilling to take vouchers in Texas? I don't think that, that you know, the utilization of Section 8 is a discriminatory tool at all. This is Stacy Hunt. He's on the board of the Houston Apartment Association, and he supports that Texas law that lets landlords say no to Section 8. After it passed, housing advocacy groups sued. They said, this is racial discrimination in disguise. My colleague Edgar Walters interviewed Stacy Hunt earlier this year and brought this up. There have been all these lawsuits kind of alleging the discrimination against voucher holders. What do you say to that? I, I disagree with that. I think that, that the voucher users in many situations, you know, they choose to live where their support group is, where their family is, where there's transportation, where their job is. We spoke to more than a dozen voucher holders, and none of them told us that. Edgar told Stacy Hunt about Denise. She just heard from dozens and dozens of landlords, you know, like, sorry, we just don't accept Section 8. Is discrimination or, or stereotyping at least part of what's at issue? No, I don't think it's reflective at all because everyone has to deal with, you know, very stringent fair housing requirements all across this country. Stacy told Edgar, there are plenty of legitimate reasons Texas landlords don't take vouchers. The Section 8 program is run by government agencies that don't have enough staff, and they're known to cut checks late. Stacy says this can hurt a landlord's bottom line and they shouldn't be forced to deal with it. But he did have a suggestion for Denise. I feel for this lady. I would advise her to, to call the people at NestQuest. NestQuest. We'd heard that name a lot during our reporting. The bureaucracy of Section 8 is so bad, Houston officials created an entirely new nonprofit last year to help deal with it. Edgar wanted to see if NestQuest could really help people like Denise. So I'll let him take it from here. Here's how NestQuest works. They find landlords in areas with high-rated schools who don't take vouchers. Then they make a pitch. Let this family with a voucher live here, and we'll deal with the government for you. On-time rental payments, those are automatic. We also secure all the utilities for the unit. The landlord does not have to do anything. This is Isabel Lopez, executive director of NestQuest. And we also guarantee that the client will maintain renter's insurance in the unit. Um, and then upon move out, we are willing to fit the bill for any damages. When Isabel took this job, NestQuest had a $1.2 million grant to spend. The goal? Help 350 families with children move to neighborhoods with top-rated schools. I was extremely optimistic. Easy. Like, I don't see anybody saying no to this. And the first time we actually had his heart talking to landlords... It was, honestly, it was really discouraging. Does the fact that 
under NestQuest that landlords have very little financial risk, and yet they're still so cautious of the program. Does that suggest that this that there's still a lot of discrimination going on? That's exactly what that suggests. And I hate to say that, but it I mean, it is a reality of what it is right now. Um, they have this guarantee that everything will work, like that everything's gonna take get taken care of. And it's still that hesitation that I don't want to work with someone who's on Section 8. As of mid-October, only 17 families with vouchers are renting places with NestQuest's help. Five of them are staying in properties managed by the company Stacy Hunt works for. That's out of 38,000 units his company manages in the Houston area. Five out of 38,000. I talked to Stacy about this. Yeah, it seems like cold comfort to somebody like Denise. Well, it's it's it, you know, like I said, Rome wasn't built in a day. I mean, we're we're trying. The industry's trying. In July, three months after we first met Denise, she was still looking for a place, and her voucher was about to expire. The deadline came and went, but I couldn't get in touch with her. Pam told me Denise was really stressed out and needed some space. Then, a few weeks later, I get a Facebook invite from Pam. She's holding this women's empowerment conference around the anniversary of the hurricane. It's called I Survived It, and Denise is going to be there. So in early September, I drive down to Houston to this little church not far from Pam's office. How are you? You need it? I walk inside, and I see Pam at the front of the sanctuary, gripping a microphone and pacing back and forth. There's about a dozen people sitting in the pews, dressed in their Sunday best, despite the Houston humidity. Pam's got the crowd going. If you survive people and what they think about you and how they look at you, you can survive anything. Amen? You can survive anything. After her sermon, I catch up with Pastor Pam. Can you just tell me a little bit, what is this weekend about? Survivors. It's the anniversary of the Harvey, you know, the one year after Harvey. People are still displaced. People are still going through things. Bring the survivors together, let them share their story. The morning is packed with prayer and personal testimonies. Denise gets up and talks about her struggle to find housing in a new city. When we break for brunch, I finally get a chance to ask her if she found an apartment. She says... Yes. And how do you like it? Just flare. It's, it's a shelter over my head right now. I won't complain. It's a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> I won't complain. It's mine. Denise was not able to find the diverse, mixed-income neighborhood she was looking for when she left Chicago. More than 20% of her new neighbors live below the poverty line, and almost all of them are Black or Hispanic. And as for the apartments? They really almost look like the projects from Chicago because it ain't nothing but a group of people on a fixed income living all in one area, gated in. The high school her daughter goes to now got a D rating this year. Last year, it got an F. Are we leaving Texas? No. But am I going to be in that school zone? Probably not. I don't believe so. Because you're aiming higher? Most definitely. I'm aiming within the next year, you probably be coming to my home opening because that's my next goal, to be a homeowner. Pam told me, in spite of it all, she still sees Denise as a success story. A year after Hurricane Harvey, she's got a roof over her head. She recently got a raise at work. Besides, her lease is up in just a few months, and she's already decided not to renew it. She wants a new place, and Pam's already thinking about how to find her a better one. That story from Nina Satija and Edgar Walters with our partners at the Texas Tribune. Like in Houston, low-income residents in North Carolina are having to put their lives back together after Hurricane Florence struck last month. Many are on their own. I am picking up. I am making arrangements for deliveries. I am trying to figure out who can cook food. I am unloading trailers. That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Kim. Oh, how are you doing? I am good. How are you? Fine. And let me apologize for our deep... I reached out to Kim Gore a few days ago on a crackly cell phone line. I'm in an area that the reception is spotty right now, but I have moved to a good point and my head is turned to the left. All right. Kim is from Pender County, North Carolina, north of Wilmington. It's an area still recovering from Hurricane Florence. The storm dumped more than 30 inches of rain on parts of the state and caused $13 billion in damage. Pender County is off the beaten path, known for its blueberry farms, small towns, and beaches. Tell me a little bit about Pender County. What, what's it like there? Um, I guess the biggest thing, Al, would be basically everybody's connected. I like to call it connective tissue. In my case, in this area I'm sitting in right now, which is White Stockings, I went to school with everyone here. So we're all connected by virtue of being, I'll be honest, African-American and having the good old roots of church, gospel, family, friends, and just togetherness. More than a month after the storm, people there are still in the middle of cleanup. Kim was away in Texas when the storm hit, visiting family. It was two weeks before she could even get to her house because all the roads were flooded. She didn't know what to expect when she got home, but she was lucky. Her house sits on a hill. My power had been out for nine days, so there was this spoilage of food. But to be totally honest, nothing major was out of place at my home. What about your immediate neighbors? Devastation. Two-tenths of a mile from my home. Just two tents, four houses, took water. Two houses were completely covered. And again, I can stand in my yard and I could see those neighbors. How, how did that feel? It did feel weird. I felt extremely blessed. But then I said, I, I didn't question why I was blessed. But I guess at that point, it's like, okay, now it's time for me to do what I need to do to help others. I'm looking at their devastation. What can I do to help you? And my church was actually okay So the thing that crosses my mind is, okay, we need to use our church as a distribution because people around us need some access because there are a two- to three-hour drive to get anything. So what are we seeing right now? What, where, where are you at right now? What do you see? Well, right now I'm directly in front of the church. They have set up portable showers for the residents here. So we've got a couple of male and female showers, hot water set up. Um, and that came about three days ago. So what's your average day like now that you're out here trying to, uh, you're trying to spread the blessing around? What's, what's that average day like? Okay, it's a lot. <laughs> um, last weekend, from Friday morning to Saturday evening, I drove 424 miles. And those were local miles, 424 in my car. Wow. I am picking up. I am making arrangements for delivery. I am trying to figure out who can cook food. I am having the food people drop off at locations. I am unloading trailers. I am trying to get more trailers in, um, and I do have a nosy streak. I was surveilling the area for damages, so that way I know what's in the neighborhood that has a need. One of the biggest needs right now is getting rid of all the debris that's piled up on front lawns and streets from homes that people now need to rebuild. Mainly all of this is sheetrock insulation. Um, you have refrigerators, you have stoves. Where are they staying at now if they can't get back into their homes? Where? Give us a picture here. They're staying with relatives. They're staying um, in lodging. Uh, I'll be totally honest. I have been by Tent City. People are living in pop tents, like if you went camping. And... What has FEMA's reaction been to Florence? Because it sounds to me like what you're describing is uh, is a, a flood of, you know, for lack of a better term, a flood of biblical proportions, right? Like this was really bad. So what have we seen from the federal government from your point of view? We do have FEMA coming in, and I want to share some of the comments that I have received from residents 
in western Pender County that says we've seen FEMA once. So they have a sense of frustration that says, should it be FEMA here all the time? A FEMA person should be down here at least guiding and directing them on next steps. We checked with FEMA, and they said their job is mostly to handle reimbursements and to help homeowners with losses their insurance doesn't cover. A FEMA spokesman told us the agency's done over 5,000 home inspections in Pender County and distributed millions of dollars of aid. They said it's up to the state and county to do much of the on-the-ground cleanup. A county rep told us that's happening. It's just slow going. That's why people like Kim are so important to the recovery. And so tell me, have you ever done anything like this before? I chuckle a little bit. <laughs> um, actually, my role, I had a uh, position that was a nuclear service director. And uh, we did have one situation at one point where we had a team of employees that was in Japan. And the tsunami hit in 2011. And it was total chaos on a nuclear site. So that kind of got me thinking, this situation is very similar, if not the same. It's just water. And it is home. So you approach these things like, okay, what are your steps one, two, and three? How do you get impact? Uh, how do you get donations? How do you get feedback? How do you get response? I'm in the community all the time. So just having me not really touch, I did feel a little guilty. But on the flip side of it, I was blessed. Mm-hmm. So if I'm blessed, I need to bless someone else if I can And I kind of took that approach just personally. Like I say, I'm a regular citizen. I would say that you are not a regular citizen. I would say you're (laughs) an extraordinary citizen. Well, thanks for your work. Okay. Kim Gore is one of the leaders of the effort to clean up Pender County, North Carolina. Soon after we spoke to her, we learned that FEMA opened up a disaster recovery office in her town. Thanks to Casey Miner for producing that story. Our lead producer for this week's show is Nina Satija. Taki Talanidis edited the show. Thanks to Mitch Hanley, Nathan Tisdale, Rachel Rohr, Charles Sennett, and Marissa Miley from the Ground Truth Project. And to Dave Harmon from the Texas Tribune and Caitlin Benz. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Our sound design team is the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>